It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, I guess thanks for letting me join you if you're carrying me around uh, on your smartphone, which is very easy to do. You just go to the PeteCalendarShow.com, you click subscribe, and then I'm always with you, as long as you have your cell phone or tablet. And let's face it, most people do uh, virtually all the time. Uh, and also, when you go to the PeteCalendarShow.com, you can also get the link there at the top to become a patron of the program, uh, like Luella did, and Timbo, and Richard, and Bill, and Robin, and Andy, and Billy, and Lou, and Grant, and Ashley, they all became patrons. They got the bumper stickers, which, you know, I'm not saying people join just to get the bumper stickers, but it's also for the live streams. <laughs> we do the live streams every Thursday. You get exclusive content. You get advanced um, audio previews, basically, of some of the podcasts, and uh, you also help keep the show uh, on the air and me employed. So uh, I appreciate everybody for that support. I'm indebted for that. Um, House Republicans last week marked the one-year anniversary of Governor Roy Cooper's declaration of a statewide emergency over the coronavirus pandemic by introducing legislation that would limit the governor's ability to enact far-reaching shutdown orders Cooper has put in place over the past 12 months. Republicans trying to take the governor's power. Evil Republicans just wanting everybody to die. Um, <laughs> I have the bill in front of me. It is, imagine, as you might imagine, <clears throat> it is not... Uh, what the Democrats are portraying it to be, which is this, uh, you know, this attempt to kill a bunch of people and uh, trying to keep Governor Cooper from protecting all of us. Uh, so I will get to that. First, you need to get over to Mattress Man. If you are, and I got to admit, I am a little bit off, you know, just because of the daylight saving time, which it is not plural. It's a single saving. It's not multiple savings. It's daylight saving time. And every year we set our clocks in spring to spring forward, which means we're basically getting ripped off of an hour of sleep. And it just messes with everyone's, uh, was it the circadian rhythm, right? Your your internal sleep clock. I mean, now, like, the cat is waking us up at like 3.30 in the morning thinking it's, you know, an hour, hour and a half later. Um, and so, like, Ditto understands this. He doesn't pay any attention to the clocks. I think it's time, anyway, like, I think daylight saving time needs to just be removed. But in the meantime, while we wait on GovCo to uh, to fix this problem that they created, uh, you know, all those years ago, um, you need to get a good mattress to help fight back against daylight saving time. The the scourge that is daylight saving time. They're trying to kill us. That's what's trying to. Ha that's what's going on. Daylight savings time is obviously. Oh, I just said it. See, I can't. It, I don't know why. It just it sounds so. It sounds so natural to say daylight savings time. Maybe because it's a bank thing we talk about in terms of like, oh, I have a savings account. Isn't it really a saving account? Because you're saving. Okay, I know I'm going far afield here. Um, but you don't have to go far afield to get to Mattress Man. They've got four locations in Asheville, in Arden, in Hendersonville. They do ship nationwide. And they have five-star local delivery service. Uh, so let the sleep consultants 
help you find the right bed for you. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. They've got all the mattresses. You got the memory foam. That's what Christy and I got. Uh, inner spring pillow top natural latex mattresses uh, along with adjustable bases so you can elevate your head, elevate your feet. You can customize this. Uh, so, you know, if you got... Uh, one of you that wants to sleep with your head up and your spouse wants to sleep with their feet up, you can customize that. Uh, they've got tons of options, uh, including the Biltmore Collection. These are the mattresses made by Restonic in Fayetteville, but they're in the hotel and in the inn uh, on the grounds of the Biltmore Estate. So talk about luxurious, right? Mattress Man is the retailer of the Biltmore Collection. Uh, remember, take advantage of their tax refund deal. Also, no credit needed. And they've got tons of flexible financing options, like no interest for up to two years. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. So last week, Republican lawmakers introduced this bill. It is now, uh, what is it, House Bill 264. Uh, and this would dial back some of the authority that Governor Cooper and all governors have to enact the kinds of sweeping executive orders that Governor Cooper has enacted. It's called the Emergency Powers Accountability Act, and uh, it is seeking to clarify the expiration of a state of emergency and the exercise of certain powers under a state of emergency and to clarify the abatement of statewide imminent hazards. Uh, this bill is being run, uh, co-sponsored by the House Majority Leader, John Bell from Wayne County, um, also co-sponsored by the House Rules Chairman, that's a powerful uh, committee, uh, the chairman there, Destin Hall, who is from Caldwell County, as well as Representative Keith Kidwell from Beaufort and Tim Moffat from Henderson County here in our neck of the woods. So what does the bill do? Well, <laughs> I would submit this is a completely necessary and proper reining in of an executive branch power grab that nobody really contemplated uh, an executive taking. Because really, like in North Carolina history, emergencies are usually hurricanes, ice storms, snowstorms, tornadoes, but generally nothing like this. I mean, this is a once in a century event, right? This pandemic. And nobody contemplated a governor uh, using the Emergency Management Act and then never giving up control and just keeping the emergency going for a solid year and doing things unilaterally without the consent of the Council of State, without the legislative body's consent, just doing whatever he wants to do, basically. And he says he's being, you know, advised by people. We don't know who they all are, but the best people, the best, we are told, right? These are just experts, and he's relying on the, the science and the data and the facts and the science and data and facts and science and data and facts. And so don't worry your pretty little head about why he's making these decisions. He's doing the right thing. That's the mantra. That's what we're told, right? Now, if you question any of this, it means you want people to die. I think that's my uh, understanding of where we are. Well, John Bell, the House Majority Leader, said that the pandemic exposed the defectiveness of the Emergency Management Act. There is no unilateral rule in a constitutional republic. These concerns are not unique to the state of North Carolina. We're seeing efforts underway across the country that include New York and Texas 
who are looking at ensuring more transparency, accountability, and oversight over these executive authorities. Simply put, no one person should have the unilateral authority to shut down schools, businesses, and entire livelihoods, especially for over a year. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is about simply clarifying the law to reflect today's challenges while encouraging more bipartisan consensus. And that is our goal with this upcoming legislation. So I I support this. And it's not because, oh, you're just a conservative and that's because a Republican is running it. No, uh, I have been uh, wary and spoken out against executive authority, especially at the expense of the legislative branch. But this isn't even at the expense of the legislative branch. This is just executive authority. And I don't want any one person having this kind of power. It's my, this is at the root of my concern with, uh, you know, the imperial presidency, where you've got presidents over the course of my entire life and probably, you know, for well, probably actually since what Calvin Coolidge, uh, that uh, the executive branch just amasses more and more and more power and they never give it back. Right. The next president who comes in, they build off of the excesses that were taken by all of their predecessors. And I don't think that that's what this system is supposed to. I know that's not what the system was supposed to be for. Right. This is a representative republic. Right. Checks and balances, three co-equal branches, all of that. This was this was by design not supposed to be a rule by decree form of government. Representative Destin Hall uh, chairman of the powerful House Rules Committee. He said most people probably did not believe that the governor even had the ability to shut down the entire state for a whole year. They assumed that there were checks and balances in place. And this bill would clarify the Emergency Management Act to make it clear that the governor needs council of state approval for certain emergency declarations. Much of the act already requires council of state approval and has for some time. And in fact, Governor Cooper sought Council of State approval one year ago when he initially started the shutdown orders. True. Uh, uh, one of the one of the first emergency executive orders. The, our bill would apply only to statewide emergency orders, and that is, it's defined as uh, emergency orders that affect uh, two thirds or more of the counties in our state. It would allow the governor to issue a statewide emergency order for up to seven days before requiring Council of State approval. That way the governor can act quickly in an emergency. But then within that seven-day period, he's got to get approval from the Council of State. And then it would require the Council of State to continue to approve that order every 30 days thereafter so that the order couldn't just stand forever. So, you know, again, we're here a year ago today when this order was entered, and it's still there. Okay, so a couple of the provisions here. Number one, the governor can act, right, seven days, declare a state of emergency, do what he needs to do. And I think this is perfectly appropriate for, again, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, you know, rock slides and uh, snowstorms and ice storms, you know, inclement weather that, you know, generally the what we perceive to be these uh, these states of emergency. That's usually what they are. Uh, So I think it's entirely appropriate to give the executive uh, that kind of authority so he or she can react very quickly. That's the purpose of having one executive. And I get that. The problem occurs when the, quote, state of emergency lasts for longer than a certain amount of time. And look, I completely acknowledge here that the seven day time frame is arbitrary, right? I mean, you could say two weeks, you can say 10 days, you can say 
certain number of hours, you know, 600 hours, whatever it is. Like you, you can pick some number. And honestly, I like, it didn't really matter to me what that number might be what that time frame might be, just that it does exist, just that there needs to be some cutoff and it can't be, you know, 30 days. I would not say, I would say probably two weeks. Like if, if an emergency is lasting longer than two weeks, you probably need to get some other people at the table. And in that, that then, you know, ushers in the council of state, the council of state for folks who don't know, but if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already do because we talk about it pretty regularly and have for the last year, uh, the Council of State is all of the statewide elected offices, right? These are, uh, there are 10 of them. So governor is one. Then you got lieutenant governor. You got attorney general. Uh, what, secretary of state, auditor, treasurer, agriculture commissioner, labor commissioner, superintendent of public instruction, and one more that I'm not remembering. <laughs> Yeah, insurance commissioner. There it is. <clears throat> so there's the 10. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty impressed. I got all 10 of them right off the top of my head. So that that's those are the 10 statewide elected offices. And they are part of the, the Council of State. They are part of the Emergency Management Act. And uh, uh, Representative Hall is exactly right. And we've talked about this. I've talked about this for the last year, which was when Roy Cooper initially uh, went for his executive order to start shutting down sectors of the economy, he went to the Council of State. Well, he sent them an email and he initially got approval for, I forget what it was. I forget what part got shut down and they they said, okay, yeah, we get that. And maybe it was the schools or something. I forget. But then there was the next part of it, which was like, I want to shut down all the businesses and the Republicans. And there are six Republicans on the Council of State versus four Democrats. So six Republicans of the 10 total seats. And those Republicans said, hmm, wait a minute, we're not so sure about this. And when it was clear he wasn't going to get concurrence, he then said, I don't need it. Well, then why did you seek it? Well, I guess it's better if you seek it and then they say yes, and then you've got the buy-in. Right. I agree. It's good to have the buy-in from the members of the you know opposing political party because it presents a unified front. But he didn't do that, which then raises this. And, and look, admittedly, it was during the uh, his reelection. Right. This happened in an election year, 2020. Uh, his opponent was the lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest. Dan Forrest was opposing things that Cooper was doing, it had become political. But a way to have maybe minimized that would have been to have gone to the Council of State and tried to get buy-in. I mean, think about it. All he needed was, what, two Republicans to flip on his shutdown orders? And at the very beginning, he might have gotten that. He might have gotten it for a set period of time. Right. He may have had to make a concession that says, OK, well, look, how about we'll do it for 30 days and then we'll see what happens, which is, by the way, what this new amendment would do. It would fix the Emergency Management Act. It would make him have to go back to the Council of State if it's lasting longer than a week. And then he's going to have to keep if he if he issues an executive order to shut everything down, he's now going to have to keep getting it re-upped, renewed every 30 days with the Council of State. And I think that's entirely appropriate, because if you got one person, one person who thinks this is a terrible crisis and you've got 
10 other council or nine other council of state members that are like, you know what, we don't think this is as big of a crisis as you make it out to be. They would be able to stop him from, you know, causing harm. What you're saying is you would rather have one person make the decision versus 10 people make the decision. And when it comes to shutting down the entire economy and doing the kind of long-term damage and harm that he has done, and you can make this, and we're going to get into this, because like whether or not what he did cost lives, save lives, all of this, this is still an open question, folks. I know a lot of people are really, really firmly entrenched in their opinion on this, that they know one way or another. I, I'm making no argument. I don't know whether it's cost more lives or not. The research indicates to me that lockdowns have not, or that they have cost more lives, they've done more harm than benefit. That's what the research shows. We're not going to know for sure for years, for years down the road. But this idea that you know for certain that he saved lives as he as he claims, you can't know that, folks. And so this builds in some sort of... Uh, they call it accountability, and I guess it is to some degree. I look at it as just more input from different people. Who's been consulted on this stuff? When he shut down the entire economy, did he ask the agriculture commissioner, for example, Steve Troxler, Republican, guy who got more votes than any other council of state member? Did he ask Troxler, hey, what is this going to do to the agriculture sector? Don't know. <clears throat> Maybe he did. Don't know, because we don't know who's advising Cooper on all of these things. Now, I advise you to get on into general equipment rental, especially if you are in the market to replace or purchase uh, a, a stand-on lawnmower, because they have, there's actually two deals, Husqvarna, right? You know the Husqvarna name, right? Power, performance, reliability. Um, but there are two different deals, and general equipment rental, because... They are your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. It means that they know about all of the different deals that are going on from the manufacturer, but they also know which ones work with each other. And so you can get two deals, two offers basically, and combine them and pick up one of the V500 series Husqvarna mowers uh, for like $3,500 off the price. Okay, so there's one deal that's like 25% off the MSRP for a nine-point fleet item, and then there's another deal that's a $1,000 instant rebate when you buy the V548 or the V554 stand-on mower. So you get them together, you get $3,500 in savings. Now, that is a fantastic deal. Like, if if you're a commercial uh, landscaper, you know, you use, you use stand-on mowers regularly and you're thinking about replacing it, you better jump on this. It ends at the end of April. These deals, uh, you can't use them like this after the end of uh, April. So times, you know, you got about a month and a half here. Um, also, and by the way, they do get people who come in, you know, residential homeowners who uh, have a large uh, piece of land and they'll get these stand on mowers as well. Because, you know, sitting is the new smoking. So better to stand on that mower rather than sit down and ride all around. Anyway, um, these are the kinds of deals that General Equipment Rental knows about, and they pass on to you. And they're family-owned and operated, uh, have been for three generations, and they're in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. 
They know how to use all of this stuff. They know the differences between the different models, what it is you're trying to do, and what kind of equipment you need to get that job done. And not just for mowers either, for everything, because they've got everything, buying or renting. But like the rentals, they've got you know generators and tillers and mowers and pressure washers. Uh, they service what they sell as well. They've got chainsaws and trimmers and hedge clippers. They've got large construction equipment as well. So if you're trying to get a project done, you want it done right, and you want the right tool to get the job done right, go to General Equipment Rental. GeneralRents.com. Check out the website. You can get details on the Husqvarna deal there as well and see all of their inventory at GeneralRents.com. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville and think outside your toolbox. Governor Cooper's spokeswoman, Dory McMillan, said in an email to WRAL News that the governor would review the bill, but is concerned about legislation that could make it difficult to quickly and effectively respond in an emergency, which, of course, this doesn't make it difficult to respond in an emergency. Because think about this. When he shut stuff down, right, he did it very, very quickly, right? He acted almost immediately, within days, less than a week. And he shut everything down. And over the course of the last year, think back now, has there ever been an instance where the governor has said, uh, due to the nature of the changing science and data and facts, oh my, science and data and facts, or science and data, the mantra, the incantation. Anyway, has there ever been an example of where something popped up and he was like, hey, you know what? Let's get less restrictive because of this right now. No. Everything he has done is always forward looking. And I understand why. I mean, I'm not knocking him for saying like, okay, we're going to, you know, lift restrictions or add restrictions or whatever. Like we're going to do this and it's going to take effect in a couple of days, you know, so he can give people time to plan. Like when he put the alcohol curfew in place, he gave him like, you know, two or three days notice. But none of this stuff is like, oh my gosh, I got to act right away for the last year. None of this would apply to the pandemic. So this argument, they're like, oh, I got to be able to adapt quickly. Well, you're not adapting quickly, <laughs> right? There's nothing in this bill that would prevent you from adapting quickly. So like, we'll see what his arguments actually end up being. Republican officials have frequently criticized Cooper's shutdown orders over the past year, questioning his goal in keeping everything from bars to schools closed for months and decrying the impact on the state economy, family finances and student learning. That is, uh, I would say, an unfair characterization of the Republican position on this. They say that, again, this is W-R-A-L, that they have frequently criticized his orders, questioning his goal. Are they questioning his goal? I think everybody assumes that the goal, if we're giving benefit of the doubt here, that the goal is to do as little harm as possible to as many people, right? right? To minimize harm save lives, if you will. See, the question, though, is whether or not what Cooper has been doing and other governors has been, in fact, the least amount of harm. That's the question. And if you have a different opinion of that, you've been cast by folks in the media and by Democrats, but I repeat myself, as somehow wanting to harm more people. When, in fact, if lockdowns are more harmful than beneficial, the people who propose the lockdowns would actually be the ones doing more harm, correct? You see, people who have a different opinion, if we give everybody the benefit of the doubt and assume that we're all trying to make it to the same 
uh, point, which is minimizing harm. See, then it just becomes different policy prescriptions. See, it's amazing how it, it, it just robs everybody of some of the animus involved in a, in a discussion when you don't assume the absolute worst motive in your opponent. Now, I have some thoughts about whether or not some of these governors seem to kind of be digging on the power that they've got. I think it's particularly attractive in weak governor systems, but maybe not. Maybe strong, powerful governor systems in different states, maybe they have a different experience with it because the kind of person that would, you know, gravitate to that position tends to be a, you know, sociopathic, narcissistic, kind of egomaniac politician, power hungry guy, maybe. I don't know. But here in North Carolina, our governors tend to be very weak, and that's just structurally. They have a weak governor system. And maybe this is kind of nice to have. I don't know. I'm not going to ascribe that motive to Governor Cooper that he's acting because he's drunk on power. I've heard people say that, but I don't know if it's true. All I know is I don't want any governor having this kind of power. I think it is entirely proper and appropriate for there to be somebody else in the car with him saying, hey, do you think we need to be going this fast? That's all. Look, I understand you're driving and I understand like you charted the course and everything, but I don't know, like, I just think maybe you're maybe you're going a little too fast. That's it. Just another opinion in the mix. Uh, lawmakers passed a bunch of bills last summer to reopen gyms, bars, bowling alleys, and other businesses, only to have Cooper veto them. That is correct. Now, Representative Hall, Destin Hall, says that fixing the Emergency Management Act uh, will help build trust during public emergencies that last for a long time. Over the past year, our governor's made some of the most consequential decisions of any governor in modern history. True. And whether you agree with or disagree with those decisions, the ramifications have been huge. True. Business have, businesses have been shut down. People have lost their jobs. True. Children have been out of school. True. And, who, and they're going to be negatively affected for the rest of their life. True. And all of these decisions have been made by one person without the requirement that he even consult a single other elected official. True. And the result of that is was what we've seen, and that is that the orders have become politicized. People saw Governor Cooper ask for Council of State approval on one of his first emergency orders, as I mentioned a minute ago. And when the Council of State pushed back, we saw the governor switch legal theories and decide that he didn't need Council of State approval after all. People saw reopen NC protesters arrested out in front of the governor's mansion, and then just a few weeks later they saw the governor out, pro out with protesters without wearing a mask. And people saw a federal judge strike down part of these orders because uh, they unconstitutionally infringe on our, our right to worship. All of that's true, right? All of these things that he just laid out there are true. Well, you could say that, it's, that that's not the reason it got politicized, I would, I, but I think that's correct. In some part, right? I think it's correct that people like me, for example, when I saw Governor Cooper take to the streets and walk a block around the governor's mansion in solidarity with the protesters looking completely awkward and uncomfortable, you know, uh, took the mask off and he's getting crowded around now by like his security detail and nobody's wearing masks and all that. Meanwhile, right, at the same time, he's running around telling everybody to mask up, can't do gatherings like we notice the hypocrisy. And while it may not carry any purchase in politics any longer, it does still have some bit of sway and impact on the general population. We saw that. And uh, even if it did not lead to his defeat 
at the polls, it does add to the politicization of his response of the pandemic. It does. It adds to it. It may not be determinative, but it is you know, part of the recipe. It's part of the equation. Uh, Representative Keith Kidwell, he says, no one should have absolute power and authority over our citizens, especially for an entire year. Unfortunately, the governor has chosen to disregard the statutory requirement that mandates that he consult with and have the concurrence of the Council of State anytime he is to make these statewide state of emergency declarations. The governor chose to unilaterally shut down businesses, close schools, and severely limit the movement and lives of the citizens of this state. In fact, I was one that helped to file a lawsuit to get the churches reopened when the governor unconstitutionally shut those down. The governor clearly does not understand how a representative republic works. We have three co-equal branches of government to provide checks and balances. Our bill will ensure greater security and accountability and restore the constitutional form of government that North Carolinians want, have, and deserve. So remember, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest sued over the very first executive order and uh, the issues that were at play. Now, he lost and then he dropped the case. He said, look, if you guys want this, you know, you want out from underneath these mandates and executive orders, you're going to have to vote them out. And then they didn't. <laughs> so uh, the, but the the lawsuits had merit. His lawsuit had merit um, because there are two what seem to be inconsistent sections of the Emergency Management Act. One part gives the governor a lot of extraordinary emergency powers. But it specifies that he can only exercise those powers with the concurrence of the Council of State. Uh, There's a section in there that authorizes the governor to exercise a similarly broad range of powers, quote, if he determines that local control of the emergency is insufficient to assure adequate protection for lives and property. See, so there's these there are these two issues. So one says yeah, you have all of these powers with the concurrence of the Council of State. And then the other one says, uh, if a local jurisdiction can't figure this out, they can't respond, then you can totally take over. And so that seems inconsistent. And so he first went with the concurrence of the Council of State route. And then when he couldn't get it, he then said, well, you know what, um, local control. And that's still, right, that's still what he argues to this day, even though his executive orders, right, say, can't handle local control, I got to take it over, but, you know, schools should have local control over whether they reopen. It's We talked about this with the school reopen debate. It is an inconsistent legal philosophy that he's using to defend uh, his power that he has amassed here. Representative Hall said this is different than the other bills that the legislature has passed that have tried to lift his executive orders. What this bill requires is, is simply... Uh, a council of state approval, and it's actually different than it was last session when the governor vetoed it. Previously, it let, it let the governor put forth an order for 48 hours before he had to get council of state approval. We've extended that now to 30 days. That takes away any of those arguments that the governor has to be able to act quickly. That he's got to be nimble in an emergency situation. We certainly agree with that. That's why we've put provision in here to allow for seven days in order to be entered without council of state approval. So we've made it a bit more enticing uh, to, to those who maybe didn't vote with us the first time and who, who didn't vote uh, uh, or, and the governor who vetoed the bill last time. 
Okay, so this is an overt uh, play to get Democrat support in the legislature, right? Because they need three Democrats. So they have enough they have enough Republicans to pass this bill, but they expect the governor to veto it. I do. And when he does, then you're going to have to try to override the veto. You're going to need then three Democrats on board to vote with the Republicans to override the governor's veto. Will they do that? We shall see. Will they even get three Democrats? We shall see. But for everybody who was, you know, singing the praises of bipartisanship and compromise last week over the school reopening bill, even though it really wasn't a compromise, the Democrats just basically jumped in front of the parade as I went over last week. They got in front of the parade. This, you know, everybody was already moving in the direction to open the schools and Democrats saw that they were getting clobbered in the polls on this. And so they needed a way to save face and they got it. And everybody's like, yay, compromise. Well, okay, here's some compromise for you. You got seven days so you can act how you need to act in the first week. But then if you're going to keep this emergency, this state of emergency lasting for much longer, you got to go back and get Council of State concurrence. And uh, it would require the governor to get that concurrence when issuing the statewide a statewide declaration of emergency beyond 30 days. And statewide means two thirds of the county. So 67 counties. So it's not even so like if it's half of the counties, he still gets to do stuff, right? He can still operate all willy nilly. But if it's more than two thirds now he's got to get concurrence. I think this is, I, I think actually it gives away a little too much. I don't think two thirds, I think that's too high. I think it should probably be half. I think if you're going to, I think if you're going to lock down half the state again, I mean, I would even say a quarter, anything over a quarter. But, you know, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a lawmaker trying to win Democrat support here. Um, let me see. Now, here's somebody I do support. It's Old Grouch. Old Grouch's military surplus. Tim at Old Grouch uh, took over when his uh, his father, you know, built the business. He took over for his dad when his dad passed away. And uh, so he's been there. His family-owned and operated business. They've been there over 30 years in downtown Clyde. And they've got real U.S. military surplus. Okay? So not the cheap stuff that a lot of surplus stores traffic in. You know the kind I'm talking about. I don't want to name any countries, China, but like they're, you know, they're not really built to high quality standards, China. And you're not really sure, like, is this stuff, like I kind of feel like I'm, I don't know, being kind of traitorous by buying stuff that's made in, you know, some other country like China, for example. Anyway, Old Grouch's military surplus. <laughs> if you go there, tell them I sent you um, and check out the emergency kits that for uh, he could put together for your car your first aid kits for backpackers and uh outdoor adventuring and stuff you should always have a first aid kit he's got ammo cans for storage although they are getting more difficult to find nowadays he gets body armor shipments as well the best thing because he gets new stuff all the time the best thing to do is go to the website oldgrouch.com or go to the shop he's in downtown clyde open monday through saturday right there on main street across the street from the anti-aircraft gun oldgrouch.com so destin hall the uh, chairman of the House Rules Committee said that this bill would apply to all currently pending orders and all future orders. What that means is, you know, the governor keeps reissuing executive orders. So whenever he does the next one, then this would apply if, you know, obviously if it passes, if he doesn't veto it or if they override his veto, if this becomes law, uh, they would expect this to take effect like with the next executive order 
much of the Emergency Management Act already requires Council of State approval. And, and in fact, we saw Governor Cooper get Council of State approval on, on several issues uh, related to, to this very emergency. We saw that Governor Cooper sought Council of State approval for some of his first shutdown orders. And it was only when the Council of State pushed back and asked questions and, you know, didn't say they were going to vote no, but just simply said, I need some time to, to think about this. I need some more information. Uh, then he switched legal arguments at that point. And so to answer your question, this is not about saying we need to get rid of a certain order now or we need to change a certain order now. This is about saying that one person should not have the ability to shut down businesses, schools, and commerce in our state, that we have other statewide elected officials, and that they should be consulted on orders of such magnitude. So uh, in a related story, this was at carolinajournal.com, now that Governor Cooper allowed private bars in the state to reopen with their limited capacity, like 30 percent. Now, remember, like breweries, restaurants, so bars and restaurants, they are all at 50 percent. Uh, remember, there was the bar in Greenville, North Carolina, Club 519. We've interviewed the lawyer representing that bar and the owners, the Waldrons, Crystal Waldron and her husband. Um, and the question was, well, what becomes of this lawsuit now? Because uh, when... Recall, they went to a Superior Court judge, and the judge, James Gale, was getting frustrated that the state wasn't giving evidence for why uh, it was necessary to put private bars under this different executive order standard to have them shut down. But, you know, breweries, for example, and restaurant bars, like, they could all be open. Why the difference in treatment? Why are you treating these different establishments like this? What is this? What does the science say, if you will? What What is the data or the facts? Right. How are you coming to this conclusion? And the state's attorney from the attorney general's office, they they could not answer to the point where the judge was like, please, I'm begging you. Give me some evidence. Literally said that to them. OK, so that's not a good sign. And then within a couple of uh, it's like a day or two, Governor Cooper announces, hey, I'm going to lift the restrictions i'm going to ease the restrictions on the private bars they'll now be able to open at 30 percent capacity and so the first question is well what does this do to that lawsuit okay well newly filed documents in the case show that the case is going to take on a new emphasis so instead of challenging the application of governor cooper's order to club 519 the lawsuit is now going to tackle a larger question, which is, does Governor Cooper have the constitutional authority to dictate terms of a business's reopening one year into a pandemic? The amended lawsuit contends that the State Emergency Management Act violates the non-delegation doctrine, which forbids the General Assembly from delegating its legislative powers to the governor or any agency. The suit asks that the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court set up a three-judge Superior Court panel to hear the case. So that's where that stands. Now, on the Twitter machine, I came across a, a post from a fellow by the name of Terrence J. Everett. He is a lawyer in Wake Forest. He also happens to be a Democratic state lawmaker. And he sent out a tweet with a... Um, 
with a graphic. It shows a picture of Dan Forrest in a very ominous black and white kind of pose, you know, well, black and white photo. And he's got like this pose and says, uh, and it has a quote, I would lift the mask mandate for the state, said Dan Forrest. And this image is accompanied by Terrence Everett's, Representative Everett's statement, quote, Apparently, my maskless friends in GOP leadership feel that too many lives were saved under Governor Cooper's leadership and that what we really needed was obstruction from the state treasurer, commissioner of labor, commissioner of insurance, and this genius. And then he's got a he's got the, the graphic there of Dan Forrest. So that's the kind of guy you're dealing with right here. Um, first off, um, considering all of the recent rhetoric from the left about literally destroying our democracy, let's take note of this Democratic lawmaker's use of rhetoric here that apparently he sees no problem being ruled by a single person's decree, which is... Not democracy. Not democracy. I understand Governor Cooper got elected, but a democracy doesn't mean that once you elect somebody, he becomes a benevolent dictator, right? Like, that's that's not how that's supposed to work. Because he is now. He's, he, he's term limited, so nobody has any more influence over the guy. He can do whatever he wants. And according to this lawmaker, he's totally fine because it's saving lives, right? So what he's... What he's proving here is what we all suspected which is that the all of the the fears of losing our democracy which is just overwrought and you know just hypochondria um it's obvious that you're okay with authoritarianism as long as it's your party doing it and by the way that's not to say that the people on the right that were supporting Trump, they were of the same mindset. Apparently there are a lot of people that are totally fine with an executive branch that amasses this kind of power and wields it against people. I am not one of these people. I do not support that. I have been it's why I liked Rand Paul for president in 2016 because he was the only one talking about reigning in executive power. Anyway, um I think we can also appreciate Representative Everett's uh, as I called it on Twitter, a, uh, the, the subtle as a sledgehammer use of fear to shut down rational discourse, right? Because the, the more important thing here is to serve the party. Because an honest broker might consider the other side of the ledger, as I call it, right? The human cost of Governor Cooper's decrees, particularly the lockdowns, right? It's just automatically assumed here that the mask mandate saved everybody's lives all of the lives that are saved and this is the nice thing about it is that you can make this claim and not have any proof right because you're just saying well think about all the people that would have died well we don't know how many people would have died nobody knows it's all speculative which is a feature not a bug of this kind of rhetoric his very tweet by the way actually makes the opposite point that he's attempting to make I mean, yes, he's trying to slam Republicans and virtue signal. They're like, I'm I'm for the people and I want the masks and I'm for saving as many lives as possible. I get the moral grandstanding aspect of it. But the underlying point here is that he's OK with Governor Cooper having this kind of leadership because Governor Cooper cares. Right. But think about how he would be screaming literally bloody murder if Dan Forrest had won. Right. And repealed that mandate. 
and lifted the executive orders and did all of that unilaterally, do you think Representative Everett would oppose that? Do you think that given uh, the, let's say, uh, uh, the different circumstances completely reversed, if the Democrats were in control of the legislature and a Republican governor had stripped away all the mandates or maybe had behaved exactly as Governor Cooper did. Do you think the Democrats might have a problem? I suspect that Representative Everett would have serious problems with one person, Dan Forrest, making unilateral decisions that affect everyone's health and public safety. Don't you think? I do. I mean, just considering the nature of the tweet, I think it's pretty evident. Uh, He's making the very case that one person should not be ruling by decree. He's making this very argument. He doesn't notice it, though. (laughs) Well, at least he hadn't by the time I started recording. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. He may have responded by now, but um, I'm not going to go back and check. I'm not going to go back. By the way, if you're not on Twitter uh, or you're contemplating getting on it, uh, just to follow me, we have a lot of fun with these North Carolina uh, political topics on the Twitter machine. So uh, you can find me at Pete Callender, um on the Twitter machine. You can also find Growers Hemp on the shelves at the uh, Broad River Hemp Company in Shelby, also at the Medical Pharmacy in Locust, also at the Durham Co-op. You can also get it at growershemp.com. I take a couple of drops of their full-spectrum hemp extract before I go to bed every night, and I sleep through the night. I sleep deeply, and I urge you, if you are considering CBD, to, uh, well, what what are you looking forward to do? What are you looking for? A better quality of life? A balanced state of mind? Maybe a positive mental outlook? Uh, How about deeper sleep? Lower tension? Immune system resilience? Okay? Over the past few months... Listeners to this show have uh, participated in a focus group with Growers Hemp, and I've got some of their responses. Here's one from Paul, who said the taste of the apple berry extract was pleasant, a combination of natural hemp taste, yet not overpowered by the fruit flavoring like some sort of cough syrup. Um, This was from Kim, who said the balm is amazing. I burnt myself on a hot glue gun. I did not have my lavender oil with me, so I put some balm on the burn, and it's the fastest healing burn I've ever had. Um, Let me see here. Carol Sue said she felt well-rested. She did not toss and turn as much as she normally does. She says, I'm a morning person, and this did not interfere with my normal morning routine. So uh, go to the website, Growers Hemp. And by the way, if you use my name, Pete, you'll get a 20% discount. Growershemp.com. These are North Carolina farmers. They control the whole process from seed to shelf. As with all CBD products, here's the official disclaimer. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. But use what I use. Growers Hemp. Growershemp.com. Promo code Pete for 20% off. It's about the hemp and not the hype. So what have we learned over the past year since the world stopped because of COVID? John Fury, writing at thehill.com. By the way, John Fury is a former spokesman to former Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert, as well as communications director, former communications director to former Representative Tom DeLay. Uh, and uh, was a speechwriter for House Minority Leader Bob Mitchell. 
So uh, here are the six things that he says we have learned. Number one, lockdowns don't work. Remember 15 days to slow the spread? (laughs) Um, He talks about how states that did not lock down as tight fared just as well as those that did. Number two, politicians love power, he says. This virus gave governors and mayors across the country unprecedented power to close down businesses, pick winners and losers, make arbitrary decisions based on personal peak and come up with fantastical rationalizations to impose their will on a largely docile populace. They loved to be the center of attention. They loved to appear to be empathetic. They loved to punish those who dissented. And most of all, they loved the idea of compelling citizens to show their devotion to the state. Number three, experts lack expertise. The expert class has rarely been right, but has never been in doubt. It has embarrassed itself by constantly making predictions that don't pan out, by unnecessarily scaring a huge percentage of the population, by offering contradictory advice on everything from masks to school openings to gathering outdoors. So, you know, good for violent protesters, bad for Super Bowl partiers. Along those lines, by the way, to kind of uh, tie this back to State Representative Terrence Everett's comments about how, you know, too many lives were saved by the governor, apparently, for the Republicans. Axios.com reporting that the CDC is now looking at data that suggests three feet of social distancing is okay under certain circumstances. (laughs) Why it matters? One of the biggest hurdles for school administrators... And a barrier to reopening schools is making sure students stay the recommended six feet apart. Dr. Anthony Fauci says it won't be very long for the CDC to potentially adjust official guidelines on social distancing policies if the data suggests that three feet of distance won't negatively affect people's safety. There's a new study. It's brand new, everybody out of Massachusetts public schools that found no substantial difference in the number of cases in school districts that implemented a three-foot distancing policy among students versus a six-foot policy. See, so yes, the experts, sometimes they don't know either. Now, look, I get it. I understand that, you know, like if you're an expert and you spent your entire career studying some stuff, chances are your ideas, your recommendations, your hypotheses, your theories, your guesses, they're going to be better informed, let's say, than, you know, me. Okay. I uh, totally understand that. I agree. But also there is something that happens. You get a bit of a blind spot. In fact, there was one analysis I saw uh, where they'd done a whole bunch of studying of like these public health experts and their predictions. And they found that um, they were a little bit, the experts, quote unquote, were a little bit more accurate in their predictions than college students were. Uh, But the ones who were the most wrong were the health experts that were the most well-known, the ones that went on TV all the time. (laughs) Because think about it. If you're going on TV and you're making the rounds and you're this, you know, media superstar for your predictions, you are less likely to acknowledge mistakes. And what that means is because now like you would take a hit, your credibility would take a hit. They may not ask you to come back on. And by the way, if you get to be a regular contributor to a cable news station, you can make tens of thousands of dollars for that. Did you know that? 
Yeah, like tens of thousands of dollars just for going on and being a talking head. So there is an incentive there. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the ego involved. But what it means when you don't want to admit that you made a mistake, it means that if there was garbage in on your first analysis, anything that comes after that, you're going to get garbage out too, right? You're going to become less reliable, less accurate over time because you're just going to keep building on bad assumptions and bad predictions but you never can back off of them. All right, so number four on Fury's list here. Lockdowns afflict the poor and comfort the wealthy. This is a great way to phrase it. And that's kind of taps into that journalistic ethos of like, I'm here to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, you know. Uh, well, it actually, it afflicts the poor and it comforts the wealthy. The people who were least harmed by the lockdowns were the wealthy folks who could work from home. Now, a lot of people realize that their homes were not set up to work from home effectively. And so now in this new normal, uh, if you are looking to work from home more and you need a better home to do it, call Rowena Patton. Her phone number is 333-4483. For real. And uh, she'll find you the right home. Home office, you know, good internet, that sort of thing. That's what Christy and I were looking for uh, when we started uh, our home hunt. And we called Rowena, the only agent I called, the only one you should, buying or selling. She has homes in all price points and buyers already lined up. 828-333-4483. That's 333-4483. Website is mountainhomehunt.com. Put her and her all-star powerhouse team to work for you. She'll get your home sold quickly. And for more money, it's what she does. And uh, she'll find that perfect home for your home office or your retirement home. Maybe you're done working altogether. Same number, 333-4483. Call her and start packing. Number five on John Fury's list of the six things we learned from the lockdown. Number five is that the media is complicit in furthering the panic. If it bleeds, it leads. Or in the COVID era, if it coughs, we're off on another eight stories about how you could die tomorrow <laughs> from a virus that kills virtually nobody healthy under the age of 70. That's not to say some people haven't died, but the vast majority do not. I initially thought this was a giant conspiracy to kill the Trump re-election campaign, but then it dawned on me that scaring people is awesome for ratings and clicks, as the CEO of Time Warner pointed out just last week. Number six, we need to totally revamp public education. I agree with him on that. Those are the six big uh, lessons from the lockdown. I would add number seven that Andrew Cuomo is a terrible person. That is a wrap for the episode. I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much, and thanks for the support. We'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs>